RNZ National, it's time now for Midweek Media Watch with Hayden Donnell. Po marie, Hayden. Po marie, I'm very good, thanks, Hayden, and good evening to you. And let's start with the Leader of the Opposition, Chris Luxon, and a difficult run of interviews. Yes, I wanted to highlight this because real murderer's row of interviews. I've barely seen a tougher run of interviews for a politician in recent times. Uh, he did three in a row. All of them were pretty tough. The first was to Al with Moana, uh, where Moana Maniapoto challenged him on some of his comments about Māori co-governance, particularly when it comes to opposing a Māori health authority. So here's a clip from that one. I appreciate in Māori dom there might be a really good understanding and literacy around what we're actually going, you know, what it's about and where it may be going to. But that's not clear to everybody in New Zealand. That's but not fair, not, right? You're not so helping. Of, you're not helping with that conversation well, because I'm so, you're using words like separatism. I, I'm not. Yeah, well, that was Moana Maniapoto and Christopher Luxon. One bit of news to emerge from that interview. I mean, all of them kind of, they, they really challenged the National Party position and in some cases, I guess, forced or made Christopher Luxon make concessions on some things. So on this one, uh, he refused to say he would disestablish a Māori health authority if National was in government, despite the party still opposing the move to set one up. Uh, after that, that was the first interview, Luxon appeared on Q&A, where he was grilled by Jack Tame. And this was a robust interview on multiple fronts. There was a, another exchange that I'm not going to play about na National's tax policy and also about uh, whether the government's spending is inflationary. He, Jack Tame pressed Christopher Luxon for a lot of examples or, of what actually what government spending is actually inflationary and it was a bit of a struggle to get there. Uh, this is another clip. This one is on COVID management. If we had taken your advice at the start of December, there is a very high likelihood that New Zealand would have had rampant community spread at about Christmas, New Year. Comfortable with that? Well, as, as I said, you know, the, the point for us, no, we're not comfortable with that. But what I'd say... That's what you advocated for and you just told me it wasn't a mistake. There was a situation last year where we ended up in a very expensive lockdown because mm. we didn't have vaccinations. There was a situation last year where we didn't have any rapid antigen tests. I'm asking you about your, your position here. So that's Jack Tame grilling Christopher Luxon. That wasn't even the end of it, though, because earlier this week, Christopher Luxon picked himself up, dusted himself off, you know, nursed his bruises and staggered back to the phone for an interview with Tova O'Brien on Today FM. And so here's a clip of how that went. What we've also signalled to you is that when we get to government in our first term, we'll look to unwind some of the tax increases the government has put forward. Yep, and I want to know what that means for millionaires versus a nurse. And, and fiscal policy. I want to know what that well, means for a millionaire versus... Well, if, if you got rid of the 180k tax threshold, your tax cut as CEO of Air New Zealand would be 270 thousand dollars more than a quarter of a million dollars does that seem right to you yeah Tova O'Brien went on to call the tax cut a CEO tax cut and asked Luxon a very pointed question why he deserved two hundred and seventy thousand dollars as CEO of Air New Zealand while a nurse got eight hundred dollars do you have any theory as to why there has been this uh, sudden shift in these interviews yeah it must have come as kind of a shock to Christopher Luxon in a way because he has had, I mean, there's been, there's been, you know, slip-ups and scrutiny and all this sort of stuff. I'm not saying no one's asked hard questions, but he's had a pretty charmed run up till now. And I did, I mean, I talked to one of the people involved in these interviews and they described it to me as kind of 
a bit of an end of a, a media honeymoon and, and that it was this point where people were starting to apply scrutiny and Christopher Luxon in particular has this habit of dropping numbers into interviews almost as a flex was the word and that actually those numbers needed scrutinising. I'd, I'd only be theorising about why he's had this charmed run but I think that probably early on there was this kind of quite strong he's the new John Key narrative from some sections of the media and he's new firm hand on the tiller and maybe that helped him to kind of escape a little bit of the same kind of scepticism that was plaguing Judith Collins in the, especially in the latter days of her tenure, especially on that latter topic that uh, Jack Tame brought up, COVID management. I, I've kind of been a little bit frustrated about the lack of media scrutiny of Nationals changing position on that. I mean, they kind of oscillated between producing a reasonably conservative stage plan for removing COVID restrictions and then calling for all restrictions to be dropped on a Freedom Day. And then they've said, you know, MIQ needs to go for Christmas. And then they say it needs to say because Omicron. And I'm glad that, you know, Jack Tame actually kind of pointed that out and maybe sort of <laughs> pointed to some of the benefits of being conservative on that stuff. Another factor, I think, is maybe just with greater polls comes greater scrutiny. And National is now consistently outpolling Labour under his leadership. And the general direction of the polls suggests that the next election will at least be incredibly tight. And so that means the things he says are of greater con consequence and they're more likely to actually happen. And so as a result, he's been put under the microscope a bit more. And you have to say that it also shows the benefits of what we call the long-form interview yeah, big minute counts on all of these interviews. I think it was 20 plus minutes for Ta'al and Q&A and 12 for Tova on today. And it does really show that you can tease out more information and put people under a bit more pressure and apply a bit more scrutiny to their statements when you do have these longer formats. And that's important because they are a bit of an endangered species. I think Q&A only gets the PM and Luxon twice a year each. And this isn't just a Christopher Luxon alone thing that gets put under scrutiny by these interviews. I think the last interview that Jack Tame did with Jacinda Ardern probably got turned into Facebook ads by National. I think that was the one uh, we were opening up for Delta. I don't know if you remember this. We're opening up for Delta and uh, there was an allegations from one side that doing so would, would affect Māori in disproportionate amounts and kill more disproportionate amounts of Māori. And then there was this other side from business they were saying, oh, we're, we're opening up too slowly and that's going to kill businesses. And I think both of those sides were put to Jacinda Ardern in that interview, which was a bit odd, but nevertheless. I think one thing that Christopher Luxon and his team deserve credit for with this is that they booked all these interviews. They're being upfront. They're allowing themselves to be subjected to harsh scrutiny. Uh, that deserves some amount of kudos and credit for it. I mean, you do have to wonder if the team will cut back the number of difficult interviews they do in future, though, or at least try to limit the number to fewer than one per day. Right, as we get closer and closer to that election, although it does seem a long way off now. I wanted to go on to the big uh, media topic of the week internationally. It's got to be Elon Musk, hasn't it, buying Twitter? That's that's right. Yeah, for a cool $44 billion US or so, the world's richest man is now acquiring a social network. I have real reservations <laughs> about this development. I mean, Elon Musk, for all his fans and admirers, can be a bit 
less than informed on certain topics. On public transport, he's touted the benefits of single lane car tunnels, which to me, I write a lot about transport, seem about the worst possible way to solve congestion imaginable. Another topic where he seems to have a reasonably simplistic understanding is free speech on social media. To explain, he's the king of free speech, isn't he? That's what he seems to say. He says that he's a free speech absolutist. He tweeted today that he doesn't want to restrict free speech any more than is required by the law. And in a way, that sounds worthy, right? The main issue with social media, though, is that this kind of maximalist approach to free speech doesn't tend to end up making speech more free in practice for everyone. Because the more intolerance you allow on social media, the more people tend to be silenced by that wave of intolerance. So if you allow more threats, abuse or pylons, all of which are legal, the people, you know, being end up being lots of people end up being forced off the platform. So Brianna Wu, who was harassed during Gamergate, that was in 2014. It was kind of like the putative uh, <laughs> social media storm of bile that ended up consuming uh being directed at certain people and sort of provided a template for all of the social media culture wars to come. She's she's spoken and tweeted about this, and she says that she fears the platform will no longer be a place where women, people of colour or LGBTQ people can exist and feel safe. And fair enough, if you're getting abused under every tweet, you're going to switch off. You're not going to want to be there. The thing with this maximalist approach to free speech as well is that it can end up with people getting actually harmed in real life. We've seen some pretty horrible real-world results from free speech absolutism on social media. A genocide uh, in Myanmar was precipitated by people being able to make algorithmically promoted threats and lodge hatred in the direction of minority groups. A more lax approach to moderation also opens pathways for horrific abuse of the platforms. For instance, the Christchurch shooter was able to live stream his massacre on Facebook thanks to the platform's laissez-faire approach to moderation with these types of videos. If you're not going to moderate and you're not going to, you're going to take a, uh, a permissive approach to moderation, that kind of thing becomes more likely. Ultimately, what Musk seems to be proposing with Twitter seems it's sort of eerily similar to the tech utopian language of the early internet, where, where the internet pioneers would tout their vision of this, you know, world enriched by the open flow of information between everyone. And since then, we've learned that actually the open flow of information between everyone, this unfettered approach, means that actually you get abuse and horrific images and the worst of human nature being firehosed directly into as many eyeballs as possible with horrifying results, you know, radicalization, conspiracy theories, QAnon. As Robbie Nickel recently put it for a monologue on his Patreon, the the best part, this is a quote, the best part of social media is that you get to hear from people who newspapers would not normally publish. And the worst part of social media is that you often get to hear from people who newspapers would not normally publish. And uh, I think that's pretty apt, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine how anyone's witnessed social media over the last few years and thought, hey, you know what, this needs less regulation. But at least one person seems to have taken away that conclusion, and that's Elon Musk, and he's now in charge of one of the biggest social media platforms. It's, it's like out of succession, isn't it, the whole thing? But um, does Elon Musk even really believe in free speech on a personal level, though? He's not exactly been opposed to censorship when it comes to his own enemies. 
This has been pointed out a lot. I mean, he has, for instance, Tesla asked the Chinese government to censor critical posts by social media workers. He cancelled the Tesla order of a blogger who wrote a rude review of one of his company's launch events. He's retaliated against and cracked down on unionisation efforts at Tesla. Uh, a member of Tesla's automated driving team posted videos that showed Tesla's full self-driving feature didn't work well in some ways and that person was fired, even though the video contained no non-public information. So though Elon Musk says that he's a free speech absolutist on Twitter, that hasn't exactly been his personal practice. It's a, a, sort of a case of do as I say, not what I do, or free speech for me and my friends, but not for thee. Yes, um, I remember when Bernie Sanders, he tweeted something and Elon Musk said, I keep forgetting you're still alive. Which, yeah, you know, that's I mean, a that, retort of just, sorts. It's just mean, and that's that's the kind of thing that you're going to be seeing more of on Twitter. <laughs> that's the kind of tone that you're going to be seeing more of on Twitter if, under Elon Musk's ten, tenure, by all accounts, anyway. The thing is, we've gone through this. He's, it's a back-to-the-future approach. We, it, we've had an unfettered internet where everyone can do whatever they like within the bounds of the law, and that's why we have content moderation, <laughs> because we saw that and it was horrible. So, yeah, point of difference for Twitter, but I'm not sure that it's actually going to be a positive change. One thing about Twitter, too, they seem to, I don't know whether this is right or wrong, but, for example, they banned Donald Trump, so they seem to uh, take action, don't they? They take action when they see that it's required, unlike Facebook. They're almost faceless, the people who own Twitter, unlike Facebook. So will it now be a case where it's Zuckerberg versus uh, Musk? In a way, I think Facebook's scale is so much greater and their main uh, um, threat really now is TikTok. Twitter is actually quite a sparsely used platform, but it is a is real... It? 22% of US adults, but then then 90% of the content is generated by 10% of the users or something. So, I mean, it's actually quite a marginal product compared to something like Facebook, which, which has billions of users. But why, does it, he, why does he want it then? What's your theory on that? <laughs> I think he's kind of a precocious billionaire that's been slighted by some of Twitter's rulers and he's kind of a troll. I, I don't know in particular. <laughs> I, uh, Twitter is really influential as a news-making tool. That's why Donald Trump was so influential on it. You know, his tweets weren't just tweets. They became news. It's where all the journalists are, and it's still the best place to go for, like, up-to-the-minute news. It's still the best place to go when news news is breaking, and so yeah, it's a it's probably the best news feed solely on its own. So that's its power, I think. Ah, that all makes sense. Very good, Hayden. Well, thank you very much. I can hear uh, the uh, cold in your voice, so um, I hope you get well soon. And thanks for joining us tonight and climbing out of bed to come and talk to us. No, thank you. Still lingering COVID, actually, Karen. COVID. So, uh COVID-19 I have. I'm in my house still, but I have fewer symptoms than I did a week ago, that's for sure. Oh, good. Oh, well, get get well soon, and uh, I hope uh, that wasn't too stressful for you. Quite stressful. Wouldn't recommend it to anyone that's thinking of getting it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hayden, and uh, yeah, talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, Karen.